A CV is a very important document. I think you'll all agree. Um, it's, it's something that you've got to submit if you're looking for a job, right? And, um, or maybe you've been uh, in a position where you've had to read other people's CVs because you were going to employ them or you work for HR or something. But it, it's a very important document. In the US, they call it a resume. And resume comes from the French word for summary. Here in South Africa, we call it a CV, which is short for curriculum vitae. And that means a summary of the course of life. And it details who you are as a person. It gives someone who's reading a, just a short summary in brief points of who you are, what your character is like, your abilities, your achievements, your career history, your qualifications, something about who you are. So they can get a snapshot of who you are. And of course, that is backed up. Oh, is this one not working? Okay. Um, and of course, a CV, as you all know, is backed up by references. Those people who would be able to verify that what you're saying in your CV is true. There has to be the references. And as I thought about that, I thought, what would God's CV look like? I've ne I, have you ever considered what his resume would be like. I mean, we have, every one of us has the Bible. This is the complete story of who God is. Some would say it's a summary, I agree, because God is infinite. But yet, it's slightly too long to serve just as a CV, right? And so what would God's CV look like? Um, and I thought, let's take a few minutes to look at that. What would he say in his CV? And so... Here's a couple of points of what I believe God would say in his CV. And then, of course, with that, the references that go with that. And I think in first, uh, the first point on his CV, he would simply say, I am God, right? In Psalm 46, verse 10, the sons of Korah declare on God's behalf, saying, Cease striving and know that I am God. In Isaiah 46, 9, speaking through the prophet, God says, For I am God, there is no other. I am God, and there is no one like me. I think the second point on his CV, and I'm going to give them to you just in, in, a, in a shotgun style. The second point on his CV might say something like this. I existed before everything else. In Psalm 90, verse 2, Moses gives reference, and he says this of God. He says, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And then point number three on his CV would say, I created all things. In John 1, 3, the apostle, Paul, uh, the apostle John wrote this. He said, all things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Similarly, in Colossians 1, verse 16, the Apostle Paul wrote this when he said, All things have been created through him and for him. And then point number four in his CV would say this. It would say, I sustain all things. Some, the very next verse in Colossians 1, verse 17, Paul continues on and he says, And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And then point number five is one we know well. He's omniscient. I am omniscient. I know all things. In Psalm 139 verse 1 through to 4, King David 
declares. He says, you understand my thoughts from afar. You scrutinize my path. And my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. And then he says this, even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Yahweh, you know it all. And then number six, he says, I can do whatever I please and nothing is impossible for me. This is amazing. The author of Psalm 135 verse 6 says this of God. He says, Yahweh, whatever Yahweh pleases, he does in heaven and on earth. Isaiah 46.10, the prophet spoke the word of God saying this. He said, my counsel will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Similarly, Jeremiah in chapter 32, 7 says, Is anything too difficult for me? I can do whatever I please. Number seven, I believe God's CV would say this, I orchestrate all things. Isaiah 14, 24, Yahweh of hosts has sworn, saying, Surely, just as I've intended, so it has happened. And just as I've counseled, so it will stand. Paul in Ephesians 1.11 reminds us that he works all things according to the counsel of his will. And then by no means the last one, but just one more. Number eight, I rule over all things. I love the story of Daniel. In Daniel, we see the most powerful man on earth decided to take on God. And by the time God was done with him, this is what he said of God. He said his dominion is an everlasting dominion. This is Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar. His dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. But he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. Friends, this is a, this is a small snippet of who God is. It's a small snippet of his CV as Lord and King. And as we consider this, we are confronted just with a sense of the magnitude of our God in heaven. The power of his reign. I love King David. It's clear that he felt the same way. Listen to this when he said in 1 Chronicles 29 verse 11. He says, yours, O Yahweh, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Incredible words. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth, yours is the kingdom, O Yahweh. And you exalt yourself as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. And in your hand is power and might, and it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. Friends, I think you can agree with me that our God is mighty, right? Our God is awesome. He's majestic. Our God is powerful beyond measure. He's sovereign. But in His sovereignty, He's also kind. He's also gentle in the way that He deals with His people. And that's going to be the focus of our time this morning. As we look at God's sovereignty, we'll look at His kindness as He deals with His people. So turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Exodus chapter 13 and to verse 17. And we're going to work through 
to verse 22. That's our text for the day. It's really the opening passage of the actual story of the Exodus. The Exodus of, uh, of Israel out of Egypt. And it tells us a lot about God and His dealings with His chosen people, the Israelites. So let's read together again. I'm reading from the Legacy Standard Bible. Verse 17. Now it happened that when Pharaoh had let the people go, God did not guide them by the way of the land of the Philistines, even though it was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. Hence God turned the people the way of the wilderness to the Red Sea, and the sons of Israel went up in battle array from the land of Egypt. And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and you shall bring up my bones from here with you. Then they set out from Succoth and camped in Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And Yahweh was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to guide them on the way, and in a pillar of fire by night to give them light, that they might go by day and by night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day, nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. Let's just pray. Father, once again, we thank you for your word to us. We pray that you bless not just the reading of it, but the study of it as we look at it, this text together this morning. And as always, we pray that you open our hearts and minds by your spirit as we look at the text and at what you're saying to us in it and through it. Bless this time together. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Now, as I said earlier, the Bible is the, is the full story, the story that explains who God is, how He works, and how He relates to His people. And it, it gives us more than just a set of principles to live by. It shows us clearly over and over and over again that not only does God in His sovereignty guide His children, but how kind he is as he does so. Now Exodus, really the whole of the book of Exodus has as its extreme value, everything about the book of Exodus has to do about recording the, the doings of God with his people, the Israelites. At the close of the book of Genesis, we find that it anticipates for us the situation we find at the opening of the book of Exodus. We see a huge and a populous people group that had developed from the 12 sons of Jacob. And it's to, to his descendants that a land had been promised. You all know the story, right? And this land had been promised to them when they had grown sufficiently in number uh, in such a way that they could actually occupy that land and fill that land and rule over it. Okay, and this is where we find the Israelites at the beginning of the book of Exodus. And so Exodus sits for us as a, as a hinge or a bridge between the patriarchal promises and the rest of the Bible. It centers around four great events that happened. And the first one, obviously, is the Passover. Chapters 1 through to 13 lead up to it. Um, and climaxes in that incredible event. And then the second great event in the book of Exodus is the crossing of the Red Sea. 
that's described for us in chapter 14. And then we have the giving of the law at Sinai in chapter 19 on. And then fourthly, the construction of the tabernacle from chapter 26. So four main events in the book of Exodus. The first two are closely related together and have to do with the deliverance of God's people from bondage in Egypt. And it's right before they cross the Red Sea that Moses makes this particular declaration that we find here in chapter 13, verse 17. And as he begins to tell the story of the exodus of the Israelites in this passage, he sets before us three great truths about God. Three great truths that remind us of the sovereignty of God. And truths that if we respond to them, it'll help us to trust Him more as we walk through the path of life. Firstly, in verses 17 to 18, Moses is going to tell us something about God's providence, right? God's providence. And then secondly, in verses 19 to 20, Moses is going to remind us about God's faithfulness to His promises, And then verses 21 to 22, Moses is going to assure us of God's consistent presence. Okay, so his providence, his promises, and his presence. And as we see God's providence in this text, we will respond with awe and with appreciation as we realize that God orders the course of history for the sake of his people. In the same way, When we see his faithfulness to his promises, it helps us to put our trust in him. And so too, as we experience his ongoing presence, we will walk in peace and comfort through the paths of life. So let's look at these three in more detail. Look at verse 17. It says, Now it happened that when Pharaoh had let the people go. Now I just want to pause there for a minute. Because the story actually begins in a strange way. Because when it says that Pharaoh had let the people go. The Hebrew use of the word there is interesting because the verb for let go or send out carries with it the sense of just get out. Just go. That's a belief. He he literally threw them out of Egypt. And we know that this was obviously in response to the final straw, which was the killing of all the firstborn of the Egyptians. And uh, so as the Israelites do that, as they leave Egypt after he literally threw them out, the very first thing that Moses tells us in verse 17 is that the way that the Lord took Israel out and why. Watch this. He says, God did not guide them by the way of the land of the Philistines, even though it was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. Now, Moses didn't do this because he wanted to give us a geography lesson. He does this because he wants us to see to, to come to know something about the providence of God. Now you ask, why, why do I say that? Well, what do we know about God? We, we looked at his CV earlier. We know that he's sovereign, right? That's one of the main things we know about him. And we know that he's omniscient. He knows everything. And so with those two things, just those two things in mind, we know that as as God rules the universe, He does so from the perspective that He knows everything there is to know about the universe. Okay? And, And so the truth is similarly that as He rules His chosen people, 
He does so from the perspective that he knows everything there is to know about them. He knows their needs. He knows their weaknesses. He knows their vulnerabilities. He knows their circumstances. He knows their fears. He knows their desires. He knows absolutely everything. He knows what is best for his people. And so watch what he does specifically so that you can know that he does this for you as well, even today. Friends, we, we don't know the exact route of the Exodus. There's a lot of speculation about it. Scholars have argued over it. It's not one of the things Denver and I have argued about. But uh, there's a lot of argument and speculation about it. But what we do know from this text is what that route was not. Because it says it was not by the way of the Philistines. And that was essentially by the way of the sea. It was all along the coast from Egypt, all along the coastline to the land of Canaan. But friends, what I want you to see is that the emphasis here in this verse is not on the route, but on God's leading of his people. Because even though Pharaoh was the one who told them to get out, and even though Moses was the one who was physically standing in front of his people and leading them out of Egypt, the text shows us here that it was God who was actually directly leading his people. And so what does he do? Well, the shorter route from, from the Nile Delta in Egypt up to Canaan uh, was only about, about 200-240 kilometers. Uh, Historical records show that Tutmos III actually traveled that route and he only took 10 days to get to Canaan. So it's very short and it seems to be the best way to go, not so? I mean, it was green, it was flat, there was plenty of food, there was plenty of water, it's along the coastline, it's beautiful. I mean, who would not want to go along that route? But the problem, friends is that this route along the coastline was inhabited by the Philistines. They were a, a powerful fighting nation. They were aggressive. They were known as vicious fighters. Even at the time of the conquest, some 40 years later, even when at Joshua's death, that portion of the coastline was still un uh, unconquered. So strong were the Philistines. And so had the Israelites gone that route, they would have run straight into the Philistines and those, they would have drawn them into conflict. And that wouldn't have worked. We see here in the second half of verse 17, Moses says, uh, adds that God didn't take them along this route lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. Now that doesn't mean that God's plan can be changed because people change their minds. The point is... That God in his kindness and in his mercy and in his providence took into account their weaknesses in ordering the direction they went. God knew that Israel was not ready for war. They just spent 430 years in Egypt. They were brickmakers. They knew nothing about war. They didn't know how to fight. Uh, and they were slaves. And they would have had to go from being brick-making slaves to being warriors with a, with a campaign, military campaign in a matter of one day. And that was clearly impossible 
And so the longer route through the desert gave them time to organize themselves as a fighting nation. Gave them time to get ready for a military campaign in Canaan. So verse 18 says, Hence God turned the people to the way of the wilderness, to the Red Sea, and the sons of Israel went up in battle array from the land of Egypt. So they already started to prepare themselves. And friends, this is such a vital concept for us to grasp today. God is showing His providence over His people, even in the planning of the route of the Exodus. Now we know in the very next chapter that as soon as they faced any difficulty, they grumbled and they sinned against God and Moses. They were, they were real cowards in the face of trial. And they said, you know, at, that, at one point they said, it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than for us to die in the wilderness. And it seems to us, as we look at that, it seems to us to be a crazy statement, right? I mean, what did God just do for them to take them out of Egypt? The incredible miracles that they saw with their own eyes. The truth is that the reason God took them that way, the way that they considered to be a curse, was to make it easier on them. They didn't see it. They saw it as a curse because the wilderness was hard. Earlier this year in, in May, Tanya and I had the privilege of going with TMS to uh, to Israel uh, on a study tour with Dr. Grisanti. And we had the privilege of spending time in that wilderness. It was, uh, we didn't know it was coming. And Dr. G, as he's known, he suddenly stopped the bus and he kicked us all off. And he said, off you go. Uh, take your Bibles and go and read out of Deuteronomy. Now, what happened was actually quite ironic because it was only about five minutes in it was it was about 37 somewhere around 40 degrees there was a hot hot wind blowing there wasn't a, there wasn't shade anywhere it was just rocks and sand there wasn't a sprout of grass um, it was absolutely miserable i can't even remember what we read we were told to read from Deuteronomy and spend 15 minutes. The only thing I could think of was getting back on the bus so I could drink some water. And you know what I did? I grumbled. And I, I, I said to Tanya, I can't believe he's leaving us out here so long. This is a miserable place to sit and read your Bible. I'd rather do so on the, on the bus. Uh, and suddenly my heart was convicted because... I realized how easily I judged the Israelites for what they did. But the truth is, it was a miserable place. It's, not, it's unbearable in many ways. But Moses is telling us here that however hard and miserable and tough that wilderness way was going to be for the Israelites, it was infinitely easier than the alternate route would have been. Because most of them would have died. That was God's kindness to the Israelites. 
Friends, in, in, his, in his fatherly kindness to us, he knows us. He knows everything about you. He knows your weaknesses. He knows your fears. He thinks of your weaknesses. And he makes sure never to lay anything on you that you cannot handle. In fact, we can be comforted every single day as we walk through the trials of life that whatever God leads us through in life, it may just be infinitely easier than what we could possibly have gone through. Right? That's his providence. And God always leads us in a way that is simultaneously best for his glory and for our own good. That's the truth. That's what Moses is showing us here. And it's a hard thing to understand. It's a hard thing to believe when you are burdened under severe trial. Some of you may even right now be burdened under a severe trial. And when you're facing these tough roads ahead, God is showing you that you can stand on His providence. Amen? So we saw the providence of God in verse 17 and 18, and now we see the second truth of God in this passage, and that is His faithfulness to His promises, the promises of God. Verse 19 and 20. Read with me. And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and you shall bring up my bones from here with you. Now once again, this is a strange story. It has to do with Moses going and digging up the bones of Joseph. I mean, that's a strange thing to do. Um, and he did that so that he could take them with him. But it's not that strange when we look back in Scripture and we go to Genesis 50. So turn with me there for a minute to Genesis 50. Because it's there that Joseph made the sons of Jacob promise with an oath that they would take his bones out of Egypt and into the land of Canaan. Genesis 50, verse 24 through 26. So let's see what's going on here. What's happening as Moses is collecting the bones of Joseph to take it to, with him? So firstly, there's, there's two things that are happening right here. First of all, number one, there's a commitment being fulfilled. Look at verse 24. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely take care of you and will bring you up from this land to the land which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And so Joseph made the sons of Jacob, made his brothers commit with an oath that they would take his remains with them when they left for the promised land. Now, friends, I don't believe this is just sentiment. You know, I've said to my family, I don't really care what they do with my ashes one day, but if it could be, I'm born in Namibia, I love Swakopmund, uh, maybe they can go throw my ashes off the end of the pier into the ocean in Swakopmund. That is sentiment. But I don't believe that's what's happening here. Because this that's happening here has to do with the sojourn of the people of God. And it started with Joseph. It started with a struggle between him and his brothers and it, uh, him being sold into slavery in Egypt and then rising to power and influence. You all know the story. He was put in jail and all these things happened to him. But in his rise to power, he was able to save his family, 
bring them to Egypt and settle them in a very favorable place in Egypt. And it was there, 430 years later, that they'd grown into this enormous nation of people. And then they come out of Egypt. And so what's at stake here is not sentiment, it's covenant. Even Hebrews 11.12 says, By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave commands concerning his bones. Friends, there's the reason that Joseph asked this of his brothers is because he deeply believed in the promises of God. He knew that the promises of God would come true. And he's saying, brothers, I know that God is going to take you out of this land. He promised us the promised land. He promised us a home. He's going to give us a land. And so when he does, you better take my bones with you. That was the faith of the patriarchs. And so by digging up the bones of Joseph, what is Moses doing? He is demonstrating to everybody in Israel that he has the same faith of Joseph. He's demonstrating the same faith as that of the patriarchs. And so you may be asking at this point, why? Why should he do that? What is the point? Well, as, a, as an illustration, I, in 2017, I decided to pack up my business and my career and pursue seminary training in, in Los Angeles at TMS. And so for the next 18 months after that, Tanya and I, we transitioned uh, out of the life we were in. It was a life that was very comfortable. Uh, it was a life in, in, that was stable for us in a country we love, amongst people we love. Um, and we moved from that to a country that we didn't know at all, where we didn't know anybody. And we also moved into a situation where our future was uncertain. And I can attest to the fact, and I know Tanya can, that that was a very stressful time in our life. We trusted in God's providence, but it was stressful nonetheless. And so I think to myself, what must it have been like for the Israelites? I mean, they, they were unhappy in Egypt. We understand that, but it's what they knew. They, 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 we see that especially in how quickly they actually yearned to go back when things got a bit tough. Okay, it's what they knew. But here we find them on the brink of an unknown future, on the edge of an unknown daunting wilderness, and they must have been very, very afraid. And so what they needed most right there and right then was a solid reminder that God never forgets His promises. And even through centuries of adversity, the memory of their promised deliverance from Egypt and their promised land had never disappeared from Israel. And so after many, many generations, faith in that promise is demonstrated by Moses as he digs up those bones. And they're prepared to leave Egypt. But another thing is happening at the same time. Even though there's this solid reminder of a commitment that's being fulfilled, the second thing that's happening is that they realize 
that was promised all those centuries ago was actually happening right in their midst, right in front of him. Genesis 50, 25, Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, and here's the promise, God will surely take care of you, and you shall carry my bones up from here. It's one statement, and they're seeing the bones being dug up, and so immediately they associate the text together, and they know that God is going to take care of them. The passage not only expresses the faith of the patriarchs, but stresses the promises of God. And so Moses here in Exodus 13 quotes Joseph verbatim. The point being that God was good to Joseph, he took care of Joseph, and he took care of Israel then, and he's going to do the same now, even in the harshness of the wilderness. Promises made to Joseph 400 something years earlier was still relevant to them today. God brought them out of Egypt. He would take care of them. And so, friends, so it is for us today. He knows our circumstances. No matter what circumstances you find yourself in, no matter the trials, no matter the choices, God's sovereignty and His faithfulness never ceases. We can trust Him in this. We can. And how do we know that? Because Israel, facing adversity, facing wilderness, facing challenge, and fear, they trusted. How do we know they trusted? It says so in verse 20. Because it says, Then they set out from Succoth and camped in Etham on the edge of the wilderness. They stepped out. They moved forward. They trusted. The wilderness was not the Israelites' ultimate goal. Nor was the wilderness just the, the, the end goal of them getting out of Egypt. But the edge of the wilderness here is a very key statement. Because on entering the wilderness, they'd exited from Egypt. And they were willing to do so, friends, for a very, very good reason. And that brings us to our final point. They were willing to step out because of the presence of God. We've seen the providence of God in verses 17 and 18. We've seen the faithfulness of God to His promises in verse 19 and 20. And now here in verses 21 and 22, Moses shows us that Israel was willing to enter into the wilderness because of the presence of God. This gives us a, a description of the extraordinary way in which the Lord had manifested Himself to Israel. Verse 20, Israel standing on the edge of the wilderness. There's a future that's unknown. And so we just, we, we're reminded, what did Israel have going for them right there, right then? Number one, they had this incredible, vivid memory of what God has just done for them in Egypt. How He had delivered them from bondage in Egypt. They'd seen the force of God's power on display. Mightily. They saw it in the plagues. They saw it in the defeat of Pharaoh. And they were going to see even more of it in the days to come. But they also had a reminder of God's promises 
in the bones of Joseph. Every time they, they came to doubt or fear or worry or concern, all they had to do was look at that box of bones. And it served as a strong reminder to them that God was faithful to Israel in the past and he was going to faithful, be faithful to them going forward. But God gave them something else. He not only showed them his providence, he not only assured them that he'd keep his providence, but he gave them his presence. Verse 21, And Yahweh was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to guide them on the way, and in a pillar of fire by night to give them light, that they might go by day and by night. In the cloud and in the fire, friends, God's powerful presence was made known to them day in and day out, all through the night. Now you might, might think to yourself, uh, any of you have ever been into a desert, there's no shade, it is extremely hot in the day, it's unpleasant. So you may think to yourself that on a hot day like that, a cloud would be a welcome and comforting for, for shade and to bring some coolness to there. And that by night, uh, I mean, typically in a, in, a, in a desert, the daytimes get very hot, but nighttimes can get very, very cold. So you think, okay, he gave them fire by night to keep them warm. Um, but friends, the text does not indicate that at all. Rather, it says that it went ahead of them to lead them. And this represents for us God's leadership as they moved through this unknown territory. It was a way of allowing the Israelites to look at God so as to be able to follow Him without actually seeing Him in His very person. We know that, that no man can look on God and live. And as they were guided by the pillar, the Israelites knew day in and day out that God was present with them. So they didn't just have to rely on the box of bones. They could just look at that pillar and know that's God. He's with us right here, right now. And it's because of that, friends, because God was with them, they were able to enter into the wilderness, into an unknown area, scary, but they could do so with trust. Friends, that pillar was not just a sign from Yahweh. It was Yahweh himself. Verse 22, he did not take away the pillar of cloud by day, nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. Friends, these were Yahweh's chosen and beloved people. He was with them. He was there to take care of them. He was there to guide them. He was there to protect them. He was there to comfort them and through all of it to remain near to them. Of course, sadly, as we read the rest of the story, we see Israel turn their back on God, believe it or not. They turned to worship false gods and ultimately he removed his presence from them. And he punished them into exile. And it seems like such a sad end to such an amazing story. But thankfully the story doesn't end there. God in his sovereign kindness didn't leave it there. Because he sent his son 
centuries later, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, once again to dwell in the midst of his people. And even though we know that the images of the cloud and the fire, these were manifestations of God's presence to the Israelites, Jesus came as God himself to, to make a true personal relationship with God's people a reality, to make it possible. To make it possible again, a relationship that was destroyed by sin. The sin of Adam and then the sin of the Israelites. A relationship that could only be restored because of Christ's death on the cross. The atonement that he made on the cross for all of mankind. He paid the penalty for sin. He took upon him the guilt. Colossians says he... he he took away our certificate, our penalty. All those who believe that can receive his righteousness and his sinlessness. And then sometime after his resurrection from the death, Jesus ascended into heaven and according to his promise, he sent the Holy Spirit. John 16 verse 7, Jesus said of the Holy Spirit, he said, to, to the people, I will send him to you. Jesus says in John 16 that the reason he sent his Holy Spirit to us was in order that we might enjoy the continual comfort and the presence of the Almighty God. John 16, 7, when he, the Spirit, 13, when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. Friends, in Acts, we read in Acts and in 1 Corinthians, it's made clear to us there that the Shekinah glory of God as seen in the pillar of fire and the cloud, which manifested the dwelling of God in the tabernacle, that now takes residence in our hearts. And it's incredible to think about it. In, in Exodus, God was in front of his people in the pillar and in the cloud, the fire in the cloud. And then in the book of, uh, in the Gospels, Jesus comes and he dwells amongst his people. And then after his death and resurrection, the Spirit of God comes and dwells in us. So it's like God's been ever increasingly coming nearer and nearer and now dwells within us. If you've been born again through faith in Jesus Christ, and you've put your trust in Him for your salvation, then the Holy Spirit dwells within you. That's an incredible thought. The same God that led Israel now dwells inside of us. It's not only in the incarnation of His Son that God came near. It's in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And as He does so, he comforts you, He strengthens you, He guides you, He gives you peace. Certainly in this age and day in which we live, there's, this, there's an extreme lack of peace. So what do you need when you are getting ready to go into a wilderness? What do you need if you're already in a wilderness? You need to recognize, first of all, with incredible awe, and appreciation the providence of God in leading you 
even through that desert. You need to remember with thanksgiving the covenant promises of God that you have in Christ because your hope is eternal. You can be assured every day of the indwelling presence of His Spirit in your life. And you too will walk in comfort. You can walk in peace. You can walk with courage along the troubled pathways of this world. Friends, as I've said before, that indwelling presence comes only through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Put your trust in Him today so that you too can have that same experience. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank You that we can stand firm in the knowledge of Your providence. Thank you that we can stand firm in the knowledge that you are faithful to your promises. Thank you that we can stand firm with the constant assurance in our hearts of your presence as you guide us through this life. Lord, as we, as we face uncertainty, as we face trouble, as we face trial, some of us struggle with fear, some with anxiety, some with concern. But Father, none of us who know you as our Lord and Savior ever need to buckle under that. We can step out in faith knowing that you're always there. You keep us, you care for us, you guide us, you lead us right up until the point where we enter into our eternal rest, our eternal hope. And for that, we will worship you with awe and appreciation for Christ and for our salvation in Him for all eternity. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.